This episode is brought to you by America's Rehab Campus. Get on the road to recovery with the best rehab in beautiful Arizona. Dial 1-833-272-7342. That's 1-833-ARC-REHAB. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now tuned in to V-V-V-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-E-R-
I started to do sports and martial arts. So it kind of kept me preoccupied and gave me motivation to like kind of be a good kid. But oh, before that, it was it was straight trouble. I used to hustle the boys because uh, I was really good <laughs> at basketball. And I used to like put a beanie on over my head, over my hair. Oh, for and real? wear guy clothes. And I would play them in basketball and like hustle them for their money. For real? And then I would like, as a power trip, take my beanie off and show them that I was a girl just to be an ass and embarrass them. For real? You used <laughs> to do that. That's nuts. So you're just naturally athletic. I know you said, uh, we're talking a little bit before the show, you said you were into gymnastics and martial arts. Is that something that you've always been in love with? Uh, I've always been in love in sport with sports in general. Like when I was a kid, my ultimate goal was to try each sport at least once. Like everyone else, doctor, you know, president. And I was yeah. like, no, I want to try each sport at least once just to see if I like it. And then there was just a couple that I fell in love with along the way that really stuck. How long did you do that for? Like the martial arts and stuff? Is that the one that you did the most? Yeah, the martial arts is the one I did the most. I, I remember it was Valentine's Day and my dad... Uh, took me out to dinner for Valentine's Day, and cool. I was getting in trouble for fighting and hustling all the boys at school. <laughs> Heck and, yeah. uh, he took me uh, to um, this martial arts studio, and I fell in love re- really quick. And I've stuck around for martial arts for about 10 years. Dang, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So uh, I know you say you were bouncing around. At what age do you feel like you started dabbling like with substances? Like when did that come into your life? That came really when I was about like 16, 17. Um, I think it was a slow progression for me because I had that martial arts that was kind of holding me accountable. It was like once in a while I go to a high school party. All of them are going every weekend and I go every once in a while because I was super uh, into the competitions. Like I was a triple crown state champion. I was world ranked. So like I was really like on my A game, but the second I started, I remember the first time I got drunk and I uh, <laughs> came home, I'm leaning on the the pool table. I'm like, I'm not drunk, I'm fine. <laughs> but I, it was a slow progression for me because of doing that. But I remember having this feeling inside of me, even the first time that I got drunk, I was like, ooh, I want to do this more. Wow. Yeah. So th- that quickly awakened for you. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Both my parents, my mom's an alcoholic and my dad's a drug addict. Okay. So, um, it was kind of normal to see that kind of behavior throughout my life. I never, you know, what other people, households would see is like, oh my goodness. No, like it was for me, it was like, that's a normal thing. Yeah. So I didn't think it was anything bad. I just thought it was the normal thing that you do. Okay. So, so not to like go too deep into that, but that was stuff that you would see growing up. Like, I guess for me, I'm just curious because I mean, you're into sports and you're doing all of these different things. Were your parents like, were they, were they struggling with substances or had, were they sober? Like how did that, you know? So it, it kind of felt like I lived, lived a double life. Like my martial arts life was like this separate entity where it was all good. And then there was like the home life where it was like, not all bad, but there was a lot of bad in there. You know, I, um, my mom suffered with alcohol and she would be in abusive relationships. So it was a lot of those type of situations where I'm putting, being put between a rock and a hard place where I'm defending my mother while she's intoxicated, you know, laying hand on full grown men because like I'm defending my mother. So I, I was put into some really rough situations and I, I tried to keep those two lives really separate. So it really felt like I was living a double life during that period of my time because there was like this really good thing that w- even my family was really into, but on the weekends and on those nights when nobody else is around, that's when, that's when the chaos happened. Wow. I mean, I, I think I never had those types of um, like opportunities. I think we did like T-ball and stuff, but my mom was a single mom. So it costs a lot of money to keep kids in sports and do things like that. And, you know, my son now, He's in Pop Warner. My daughter has done dancing. But if it wasn't for my wife putting those things together, 
I would have no understanding of that. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I think that's super cool that you did that because, you know, from a lot of fighters, people that I've met, they they tend to be like the most humble, most respectful, like genuine people. And I don't know if it's because they didn't have anything to prove. Like they just know they could freaking beat your ass in a heartbeat if they had to. You know <laughs> what I'm might saying? Might be an underlining reason for it. But <laughs> I mean, no, the thing about martial arts is that it, it's um there's a lot of principles that are taught whenever you're you're doing martial arts, like respect, discipline and things along those lines. So, uh, there's a, the meditative form of martial arts that a lot of people, a lot of people just see the punching and the kicking and the blood, you know what I mean? But like, they don't know, like they don't pay attention to the meditation, the the self-discipline that comes behind that, which I, I truly believe has made recovery easier for me to be honest with you, because I had that standpoint with learning those type of like principles, like some of the principles that are in martial arts are the same ones that are written on the wall. When you walk into an AA room, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that part became easy for me because of me learn, doing martial arts for that long. That's cool. All right. Well, and and then uh, at what age do you feel like I know you said you had gotten drunk a, a couple times at parties and you really liked that feeling. Was it one of those things where I know you said it was a slow progression, but from the first time, did it just become something you wanted to do regularly or did it like a slowly just start kind of taking you down? So because of seeing my mom and my dad with their with their substance use, it was slow. It, okay. it was slow. It was it was uh, I had this stigma, you know, and I I think a lot of people can relate to the fact of like, I don't want to be like my mom and my dad when it comes mm-hmm. to this aspect. A lot of things I love about my parents. But when it came to that, I was like, I don't want to do it. So it was slow for me because I had that thought in my mind of like, I don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. And. I resisted it really hard until I reached about 18. And that's when I stopped doing martial arts. There was a big situation that happened that kind of, you know, made me dwindle away from it. And the second that martial arts left my life, it was like, all right, cool. Drugs and alcohol is going to be my my new, you know, thing that fills me. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And do you mind going into what that situation was? What was it that that changed? No, you're fine. Um, When I was doing martial arts, I was with a specific family that I, I did it with for years. And um, we just had a falling out. Like it, I, we weren't agreeing on things. There was things that were like, you know, promised and everything else. And then, you know, I was um, in a relationship with my instructor's son, which is never, you know, a good thing. Yeah. And that dwindled out. So it just kind of felt like I was being pushed out. And when I got pushed out because I had set that relationship so heavy in my life because it was like it almost felt like I had a normal family and then I had you know this chaos family at home and so when I felt that they left it was like okay now I'm off to the races because this is what I know fills a hole inside of me and I've seen it fill holes in other people around me as well and and looking at it now like in hindsight from from back then do you feel like any of those feelings like of abandonment even stemmed from with your parents not being together type of a thing Yes. Um, my dad was in and out of inca- incarceration after a, about 10 years old. That was definitely a part of it. You know, my mom was very focused on, you know, not only her alcoholism, but her relationship with men. So it was very much where I felt like I was alone and trying to navigate that and also being the oldest sibling and yeah. taking care of my, uh, taking care of my two younger sisters. And, um, most of my one younger sister, my other one's a lot, a lot younger than me, but it, that, and, losing that relationship with that family from the martial arts too. So it just kind of felt like every person that I cared about was just dropping like flies. And now I had figured out this substance that I knew that made me feel whole in some type of way. So it was like easy to go to that because then it made me not have to think, not have to feel all those abandonment and all those issues that, you know, I didn't even understand were issues at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I I think that's such a, a critical point that you just said is, I mean, most of the things that we see in this world of recovery is like 
most people can't even see that there's a mess in the first place. So mm-hmm. how do you clean something that you don't even see as a mess? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I, I know I didn't, I thought it was like normal for everybody to be kind of like living that life, you know, living double lives and everything else. So I was like, am I just being a, a puss? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Am I being a pussy? Like, am I just like not handling life how we're supposed to handle it? Not realizing that the things that were put in front of me weren't things that are considered quote unquote normal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was hard for me to really get over that hump, if that makes sense. Or like, it was more, I'm going to run away from that because now I know I have this substance that's going to feel all those negative emotions that I was feeling about my life. And especially like at 18 too, like, I mean, I think there's so much pressure. It's crazy how we consider people to be like adults at 18, right? And I, I look back at those ages. I was like, I hadn't even graduated from high school at 18 yet. I had dropped out, like done dumb shit, you yeah. know? There's no way, like I, I'm just thrown into the wolves, like s- supposed to be able to survive out here through all this shit, you know? So like at that time, were, were you were you independent? Were you living with, with your parents? Were you trying to be on your own? Were you working? Or so were- I, once I stopped doing the, the martial arts deal, I got into uh, bartending and, okay. uh, cl- and club promoting. So I started working as a bartender. <laughs> That's a toxic ass environment too, uh, bro. <laughs> and you wonder, why I'm here okay like um I literally jumped from being like I was a instructor to all these other people to now I'm serving drinks working in bars you know and even then I'm like having like a really good time to be honest with you like I'm there was a good time in that period where I you know I'm slinging drinks I'm having fun I'm partying with friends you know I'm smoking weed you know doing a little coke on the weekends and it like it seemed like it was normal because if you're part of that lifestyle like the that type of industry it is normal you know so it it felt like it was normal because everyone around me was doing it me not knowing that it was not normal in my situation yeah, at no, least been... but it was uh it was crazy you know it it was me drinking or me bartending and then i was drinking so much behind the bar and like drinking so much and getting so intoxicated at the places that i worked that they're like why don't you just promote because you're the life of the party and we know that we can use like you get people through the door but also like you're a mess, so we can't have you slinging drinks behind the bar. I should have known then, right? But like, yeah. I, they kicked me off from behind the bar, and they're like, "Hey, just just club promote. You know, you're good at getting people through the door and yeah, making sure people have a good time." Yeah, and and once again, that goes to the whole thing about like if the you know how do you clean a mess if you don't see it? These people, without even realizing it, were kind of like enabling you. Oh, 100%. you know, instead of being like, "Hey, Lindy, like maybe you shouldn't be drunk on the first hour of your shift," type of thing. You know what I'm saying? hundred percent. And then like it was it was feeding my ego and hundred percent like i'm the life of the party okay yeah let, let me bring some people in you know like it gave me like a little power trip walking in with like 20 people that behind me because shit. they knew i was gonna bring a party and bring bring fun and like like you said like not knowing not anyone knowing that they were enabling that behavior i even have some of those friends on facebook who see me now and they're like uh did i contribute to <laughs> what ended up happening i'm like no you're good that was all me but i'm like I love the cocktails you made me. It's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's funny. That's what's up. And so, so like at what point from that time of like being 18, having that fun and it's so crazy. I'm thinking like all these situations in my head, it, it is fun to a certain point when you're younger because you're around all of these people, you're enjoying drinks, people are laughing, but then in reality, like sometimes it's like, you notice like friends kind of drift away mm-hmm. and then it's like those same people that you're still partying with like five, six years down the road. It's like, it's not really that fun anymore. It's just like a bunch of broken people trying to find the pieces together. <laughs> trying to have a broken family, yeah, basically. For real. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, so I was underage working in all of these bars, mind you. None of them knew I was underage. I'm sorry, guys, for you guys letting me in. You guys probably could have lost some liquor licenses, but um, uh, 
it was right around it was five years that I was that I was in that environment and like when I look back on it because of how blacked out I was because of how much drugs I was doing whether it was ecstasy molly mushrooms smoking weed or just a cocktail of them all mind you I barely remember those five years like when I sat down and looked at my timeline I'm like I thought that was like a year span but then when I look back I'm like no that was five years of my life and i literally remember maybe six months of it damn that's a lot of different substances too Mm -hmm. so like you know and and it's funny because like little by little you know once you start putting these substances in your body your judgment gets clouded a little bit you're not (laughs) thinking as clear you're a little bit slower you know what i'm saying um did you have any type of fear like trying different drugs or was it just all like it's party party drugs we're all having fun type of thing uh i remember the first time i tried um ecstasy and i remember i was terrified as i'm like putting it in my mouth right and but then like once i did that the fear of drugs and any type of drug mind you it felt like it dwindled away like because i like fell so i think i fell so deeply in love with that feeling that it was like okay if this is it i don't mind this i don't see why like at the time like i don't see why people call this bad you know what i mean and uh so there wasn't there was that initial fear but once it hit my body that fear went away um so every time you put a line in front of me i i was one of those you put a line in front of me it could be green it could be blue it could be white i don't care (laughs) i'm putting it up my nose because i just know it's not going to make me feel the emotions that i'm feeling because i was i was literally just in go mode like there was I don't remember the emotions that I had during that time. I don't Mm -hmm. remember the relationships that I had during that time. You know, there's even people that I've met in recovery that remember me from that point in time. And they're like, hey, Lindy. And I'm like, I don't like I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just I don't remember you because that's how that's how bad it was at that point. But I was just so lost in the delusion that I just I just don't. I got a quote. I'm curious to know what you think of it. I had a client one time say the age that you are. And I mean this like you know, like figuratively speaking, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, the age that you are when you start dabbling into substances is the same age that you're at when you decide to get off of them. I believe that I, I in some ways, not in all ways, you know what I mean? Because you can learn from the life experiences. I think I believe that. But I also believe that the second that you get sober and start doing the work, it's like all those ages catch up really quickly if you let them. And if you're, if you're willing to soak in all the lessons that you were supposed to learn during oh, that yeah. point in time. Fill in all those emotions at once yeah. that you've been suppressing for yeah. the past five years. All right. And, and uh, continuing on, like five years of this. Did it continue to get worse even after the five years? Like at, at what point did you decide like, man, I got to got to switch some things up here? So it it definitely got worse. And then um, I fell into a relationship when I say I fell into a relationship. I don't even remember how we got into a relationship. Um, And I got pregnant with my first daughter. And when I got pregnant with my first daughter, I that was the first time I had been sober for about like seven years. Like it was just I and it was during that pregnancy. The only reason I found out I was pregnant, mind you, is because I went out to have a couple of drinks and I got sick. And I'm like, I'm an alcoholic. Why am I getting sick after a few drinks? And I took a pregnancy test and lo and behold, I'm pregnant. And that was the only time I remember getting sober before this last stint of sobriety. And I was able to stay sober for the pregnancy and a couple months after. And 
that was the only time I had those type of moments of clarity. I was like, wow, what I was doing was crazy. But I thought because I was sober during my pregnancy that like, okay, it's going to be fine from here on out. Yeah. Like Not, a pat on the back. You're able to do it. Whenever yeah. You like, oh, now you have a kid on the way. You're kind of you're in a relationship. You have a house. Okay. Now my life's getting normal. So now I can put that stuff behind me. You know, that's what at least the per- perception that I had and not realizing that I still had this uh, spirituality and that I still, you know, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic because I just still didn't believe it at that time. Okay. And, and, you know, not to go back, I don't know if this is during, but uh, I have on one of the notes here about something that happened with the Glendale PD. When, when was this situation? This is was actually this, after. So this, this was is actually after. So this is actually coming up actually. So after about, I had my daughter for about three months and I went out drinking for the first time since I, since I had stopped drinking after I had my kid, uh, before I had my kid. And I was supposed to go out for a night. I ended up on a four-day bender Ooh. at a friend's house, left my kid with her grandparent. They thought I was supposed to be home the next day. I wasn't home for four days later. Ooh, man. And um, when I mean the the disease uh, took a hold of me really quick, it did. And I um, finally went home after four days. Um, and it was like off to the races and I, and I feel like it was worse than it was before, but it really wasn't. I just was right back to where I was. I was, you know, it, it turned into drinking, uh, and Coke and then it slowly from Coke, it turned into meth. And then I was using meth as like my schedule to take care of my daughter. Like that's not normal, but at the time, like I'm just so caught in the illusion that I don't see it. And then I started using heroin to bring me down from the meth. So I'm taking care of this like newborn baby and I'm using meth and heroin and I'm drinking like a bottle a day. And my father, who, like I said, is a drug addict, moves in with me and he he came in with pure intentions of trying to help me because he could see that I was drowning. But like someone who's already drowning can't try and save somebody else. Yeah. And it instead of it becoming a situation where it was us helping each other, it turned into us making the situation worse together. It turned into I was we were both selling drugs out of the house. We had numerous amount of ammunition and that was inside our garage and it was it turned into a full-blown trap house and i mean when in a matter of like six months it wasn't like it wasn't like it was a slow thing like it just it just took off and you know, I, I started to realize that we were getting watched, like, but also I didn't know if I was just paranoid from, yeah, the meth. from all the G. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is this the meth or am I actually getting watched? Like, I'm, you know, just that that confusion. And um, I remember I, I had my moment of clarity kind of in that period of time. And I said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to get sober. Um, and so I decided I'm going to move out of that house. My dad was going to move out of the house. We're going to go our separate ways. And as we're moving out of the house, the day we're moving out of the house, mind you, the house is empty besides like a couch and a crib. And my house gets raided by Glendale PD. And um, it was, uh, it was insane. I mean, at this point I'm 87 pounds soaking wet and I'm, I'm five, seven, so I'm tall. And yeah, my dad got taken, my dude got taken, my best friend got taken and I'm sitting there with my daughter in my hand and I actually trying to hide all the shit. Like I had paraphernalia in my hand and I broke it into the toilet to flush it. And then my hand is gushing blood. So I have one hand gushing blood, oh my, my kid, God. my kid on the other arm as these cops are breaking down my front door. And, and, um, yeah, my house got raided and everybody got taken. And then they told me if they find one more substance in the house that they're going to take my daughter. So they were trying to reason with me. They were even like, if you go to treatment, we're not going to take your kid, like do it. But if we find one more substance in this house, you're like, you're gone. We're taking your kid. And, um, I was sitting on the couch and I find 
a roach, dude. And when I mean it's a roach, I mean it's the the pit end of the roach. And I like try stuffing it into the couch cushion right next to me. And they said, that's it. Oh, damn. They were just paying attention. That's huh? it. And um, and yeah, they took my daughter away from me um, and I got arrested. That mugshot is not my prettiest mugshot. And there's quite a few of them. So um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. um, yeah, and it was kind of messed up and not to like say anything about the PD, but like as I'm getting arrested, my dad, um, you know, told them like, hey, do whatever you need to, but just don't, just don't mess with my daughter, you know? Yeah. And uh, they told him that before when he was getting into the car and I didn't get arrested till two hours later. And they literally walked, he was walking into the van to go to the prison and I'm walking into the jail. So they had us cross paths. And I don't know if this was on purpose or not, you know, whatever it may be, but like my dad's like, are you serious? Like, he's like, you guys said you weren't going to take her. And one of the cops made a smart ass comment to him. And yeah, he, my dad, all, all my, while he's going through the booking process, I'm going through the booking process. He's just in his head thinking, oh, wow, like my kid got taken because of this whole ordeal. Wow. Mm-hmm. Man. And on, on this, uh, on the notes, it said that it said both of your daughters. Did you have two? Yeah. So I do have two daughters. So when I got arrested, I um, didn't know at the time and I didn't find out till later that I was actually pregnant with my, with my second daughter. Oh, wow. So as I'm... I got arrested and they arrest me for weed out of everything that was there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, everything. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> but the roach. I got, I got arrested for the roach. Um, and I went back home and I'm like, I'm going to stay sober. So I'm, uh, they let me out within a couple hours and I go back to the new house that we had just moved into. And um, I tried detoxing on my own. Um, so I'm detoxing off of meth, heroin, uh, cocaine, and marijuana, alcohol, and I proceed to break everything in my house, have a seizure because now my daughter's taken away. So I'm like, I got to get straight. Well, I find out that you could pass a drug test um, off of meth if you do certain things. I'm not going to say how, how you yeah. do that out here, but like <laughs> I found out you could pass. So like my addict mind is like, hey, I'm still going to get high. Just I'm going to try and pass drug tests so I can still get my kid back because I'm still in that delusion, right? I didn't have the proper time like in a treatment or anything like that yeah. to take me away from that delusion. And a month into using that, I start to like realize I'm like, because when you're using, you don't, you know, women's bodies are, are different. And I kind of, I'm like, I think I'm pregnant. And, um, you know, the guilty part of me is like, you know, doesn't want to share this part. But the truth is, is that I used throughout my whole pregnancy with my second daughter up until the day she was born. Yeah. And um, that's why both of them got taken away because my, I was already in an active case um, with my oldest. And then here I am now uh, giving birth to uh, uh, my daughter uh, yeah. who is methamphetamine exposed. So they take her away from me right away. I really do feel and, and thank you for sharing. I know I know it's it's hard to open up sometimes, but to me I feel like that's a super important thing to speak on is because I mean when we're using the shame, the guilt, these thoughts that are coming in when in reality you know it, it, these drugs are designed to keep you addicted to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean only something truly evil in my opinion. I always think of of this for example, we had a client a long time ago that I remember she was on her last, like her last, like little thing with, with DPS, I guess is what it is, right? CPS, whatever. And, uh, they had said, you know, if you come and you get treatment, you know, we'll, we'll keep your daughter and everything, but this is your last chance. Like if, if something, if you don't finish this program, you're out of here. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just crazy to me how temptation, how the enemy, whatever it is, like how it works against anything that you're trying to do, especially in recovery. She ended up running into a dude. 
you know? And I mean, it's the same for dudes. A lot of the dudes end up running into females here or whatever, but it's like the guy must've been the enemy in disguise must've been like, you know, had that, that, that wool over her eyes or whatever, but she ended up leaving with him. Yeah. And I, and I just remember going home that day and just being really sad. Cause it was just like, man, like that was her last chance. You know what I'm saying? But I think it's important because people need to see how deep the addiction can get, especially those who don't understand addiction. You no, know, a hundred percent. Like when it came to like that ordeal, like me and my dude were still using together. The guy that I, that I had the two kids with me and him, you know, continue to use together. Like he got high with, you know, with me, while I'm pregnant, you know what I mean? We're, we're doing this at the same time, but it's, it's my body and you know, I'm the one, you know, going through the situation. So when I had my daughter that, that, well, what I go back to is like this, that situation, like it's, I feel it's so important to tell people because, you know, it's such an unspoken thing about like women pregnant that are like, you know, having babies or getting pregnant. It's, it's just, it's the reality. That's just the truth of what's happening. You know, I I've seen, you know, a homeless pregnant woman panhandling on the side of the street. And like, I feel for them because that was me. Yeah, You know, it's like, it's like, luckily there's a way more opportunity now than programs. But like, even just five years ago, those there weren't those opportunities. And I'm so scared of DCS finding out that I'm using, that I'm like hiding myself and not getting the proper help that I need because I'm scared it's going to ruin my case with my oldest daughter, and mind you, this is the, the delusion, right? That I'm yeah. not asking for help, but like that's what our thought process is when we're in that delusion. Is like, if I ask for help, then I'm just going to get in more trouble with DCS, so I'm still not going to get my kid back. Not realizing because if I actually probably did ask for help, I might have been in a better situation. Yeah, absolutely. But that's just a delusion. It's like, oh no, I'm I'm so terrified and I'm such in fear of this situation that I'm not allowing myself to get the proper help because. All I want is this idea of a perfect family, but I'm not even taking care of myself to be able to get to that point. Yeah. And it's, it's an unspoken thing. And it's like, no, it's real people like, and the women that don't talk about it and have a lot of guilt and shame around it, you know, I, when I've shared it, I've had multiple women come up to me and be like, thank you for sharing that. And that's because another woman shared that with me. Like if another woman wouldn't have shared that with me, I probably would have never spoke about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's just the truth of how this disease works. No, I mean, I, I think it's incredible that you're so strong in your recovery now that you're able to open up about those things. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, my my only hope and prayer with this podcast is that whoever's listening on the other end is, you know, that, that, that you're speaking to them right now, that you could help them go into that right direction. Because, I mean, we know substances want to get you alone. They want to get you in your head so they can speak and say well, all the bullshit they need to say, you know, the insecurities, the fear. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. It, it's crazy how delusional our minds are and also like how much fear controls us. Even when we're using, there is fear. That's one of the, mo- I think, most prominent emotions that stay present for some people when they're using is like the fear of, legal issues, the fear of judgment from family. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you just let yourself ask for that help, you might be giving yourself a freeing experience, but we're just, we're just so caught up in our own shit. We can't even fucking see it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I hope that you get to see it. And then unfortunately for me, like I was able to see it. It just took a lot longer for me to be able to see it. Like how long did you stay in that relationship? It was like a codependency pretty much. Yeah. So after I had my uh, second daughter, 
uh, I got sober for a little bit and he continued to keep using. And I, I was just so codependent on him. Like I was locking myself in a room trying to stay sober, like yeah. no program, no nothing. I'm locking myself in a room like while he's getting high out there. And I'm just like, I got to do this for the kids. I got to do this for the kids. But I was so codependent on him. And, and, and like we hadn't touched each other in months. Like we hadn't actually had a legit conversation in months, but I was just so codependent on it, even his presence yeah. that it it stopped me from going and seeking the help that I needed because I was like, I need to save him too. Yeah. Like, I, oh man. Yeah. That, that was, I was like, I, I, I want to get saved, but like, I need to save him too because I felt this guilt that I got him into this situation. Right. So I'm like, it was one, it's my guilt Two, It's my codependency that I'm like, okay, I need to save you too, to be able to get to where I actually need to be. So just come with me, just come with me. Let's get help. Let's get help. But like, I'm, actually for once wanting help but i'm so codependent on this person that i'm like i'm not gonna do it unless they do it too yeah wow and and how long did that did that last how long were you in that delusion um it was a good like eight months my yeah so it was like it was about it was like eight to nine months i stayed sober by myself for like three or four months and then i remember there was one situation where um you know he hadn't used for like a month and I see him like run into the room and run to the back room. And I'm like, oh, no, I know what you're doing. <laughs> I know exactly what you're doing. Right. And he goes into the back room and I see um, I like break down the door because I'm just I'm a toxic girl at this point in time. <laughs> so I break down the door. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and he like has a pipe in his hand. And I and like he gave at the time, it feels like he gave me the perfect excuse to relapse because I like I literally looked at him and I was like, if you get high, I'm going to get high. And you know how long I haven't been using, so it's going to be your fault if I get high. So like, this is my justification, right? Like making myself the yeah, victim, yeah. even though it's like, I just really want to get high. And now you've given me an excuse to, because <laughs> I can blame you and I can feel better about it. It's <laughs> funny. So I legit like was like, hey, if I get high right now, it's on you. It's your fault. And so the lighter. <laughs> I'm already lighting it. Just as I'm saying this, like torch is going. Dude. I'm just like, if this is your fault. This is your fault. <laughs> and yeah, I, I got high um, for another three months. And then the same situation that you were saying about the other girl, like DCS was like, hey, if you don't go to treatment and get help, like this is it. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I waited another two months because I wanted him to get go to treatment with me, that codependency and it's like a, me trying to save somebody else while trying to save myself. And I, like I waited another two months and then I finally got to the point where I was like, what am I doing? Like I, ha I remember, and this is where I had one of my first spiritual awakenings was actually while I was still getting high and I didn't understand it until I read the book, right? It was like the God shot, the God shot. Right. And I'm sitting there and I was raised with a Catholic family, but like when I went to ones that speak Spanish and I don't speak Spanish. So like, <laughs> like I was like all really foreign to me, but the one thing that I always saw was people dropping on their knees and praying. Yeah. That's the only thing that I've always seen in any type of religion. Right. Ooh, yeah. And I remember I had this moment of like pure desperation. And I remember I'm on my tweaker couch. I'm doing a little tweaky wood project in the, in the, in my living room. <laughs> and I was, drop to my knees and I'm like, I don't know what's out there. I don't know what you are. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, I need help. Like I need to get out of this and I don't know how to, and I don't know how to ask for help. And maybe not in those lamest words. Right. But like, it was, it was definitely something along those lines. And I'm crying as I'm saying this for sure. Mm. And like, it's like a scene from a movie sometimes when I think about it, cause I'm like, I'm literally just in this like fetal position, just like I need help. And what's crazy is like, I had not been disconnected from my mom for a couple of years and my mom called me and she's like, Hey, 
uh, I just got a new job. Um, I know you don't have insurance. Do you want to get on my insurance? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> well, by the way, mom, I have a DCS case with both my kids. I'm using meth in a tweaker trailer out in the middle. So of you Chino hadn't spoken Valley. with her in a while. I hadn't spoken. Like she was aware of the situation, but we and her were not close. Um, and I, so I just unloaded on her and she's like, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, let's do that. Let's get you in, let's get you into rehab. And, um, I start shop once I figure out what my insurance is, I start shopping around, you know, and then I finally called, uh, the facility that I went to and they were like, okay, cool. We can get you in. And then mind you, I'm in Chino Valley cause I had moved to Chino Valley cause that's where my kids were for the DCS case. And I'm come to Phoenix, which is weird because there's so many treatment centers in Prescott. But like, for some reason I got a hold of a place that was in Scottsdale. Yeah. And I finally had that moment of like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. And I remember packing my bag and this man that I'm so codependent on that I like, I stopped doing this. Like, I'm like, Hey, I'm leaving to go to rehab today. And he says, cool. And he closes the door and he walks out and he goes to work. And I'm just like, I've been sitting here for seven months just wanting you to get help with me. And the last thing you say to me before I leave to go to rehab is cool. I don't know if it was also because he didn't believe me, but like. No, I I think it's important. I mean, it's it's um, I I think about different situations in my life, you know, relationships. It's, It's when they say relationships are 100, 100 It's absolutely right. Like, you know, I've been married for 11 years and my wife, it's like, you know, I need you. But at the same time, she's like, I need you as well. You know, I mean, it's very difficult to be given 100 percent. Like, you know, I feel like there was there's good intentions with with you, with what you were doing. You know, like I want you to get help. But when it's not reciprocated the same way, it's kind of like, well, damn, like I think eventually maybe it was that same God shot, that same voice talking to you that's kind of opening your eyes for the first time. Like, look, he ain't investing as much into this as you are. That's what it felt like. And it, it almost was like a good thing that he had that response, because if you would have the response like, no, stay with me, like, we'll figure this out together. I don't know what I would have done. So I like there's those weird things that you're grateful for, right? Like, like I'm grateful for the fact that the cops found the roach, you know, I'm grateful for the fact that he said cool and walked out the door because those are all pivotal moments in my, in my story today that led me to the life that I have today. Amen. That's real. Like legit. Like that's what it is. And like him, if he would have said something else, who knows if I would have waited, if I would have died, who knows? Like, Mm -hmm. especially because that was my last shot with DCS, right? Was that that moment and I'm walking in and I'm like, okay, you just basically signed my go away pass and that even though it felt like it hurt so bad at the at that moment in time, I'm so blessed for that today. Amen. Yeah. It's it's crazy to hear you say that. You know, um uh, it, one of the things that is similar with pretty much every single story of from any human being that we've had in here is that crying out part. Like there, there comes a certain point where it's like, you're so empty. You think the rock bottom is the end, but you can get deeper than that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think there comes a certain point when it's like, you're just so empty and you don't know what else to do that you start. I don't know what it is. Even like people that aren't that faithful, they just get on their knees and they pray for something. You know, you always hear that, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I've heard people go through situations and they're like, God, man, please. You know what I'm saying? But like Jeremiah 33, three says, call unto me and I will answer thee and shew thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not crying out to him. I think that's such an important part of it because 
you know, it, it gives you that opportunity, like to, to kind of see things for the first time, you know? And for me, that that's just a huge part of it that I really love is that is, is hearing when people start talking about that to me, it's because we've had those situations too. Uh, everyone that we've talked to that's sober, they've had those situations where they had to cry out and that's where that real change started. Oh, you're giving happen. me goosebumps just talking about it. That's uh, amazing. It's no, beautiful. It's, it, it is. And like, I, I hear this from other people and I'm like, Oh, I know that experience. And then it's almost like, it's like a different type of high, right? Like yeah. when I hear people saying that they had that experience, because when I, even when I think back of to that day, I'm like, it gives me that own like crazy like wow like I didn't know how pivotal that mo- like because I even going to rehab and everything else after that I didn't know how important that moment of dropping to my knees was until you know I was mm. able to have that clarity to be like oh wow that was a pivotal point and I had no idea that's awesome I think that's fantastic and and uh you know I know you said that you hadn't talked to your mom for a while during that time was your mom sober no my mom was not sober at the time she was in a toxic relationship and she was going through her her own deal there was a traumatic event that happened for her during that point in time and uh yeah we were just disconnected and like you know some people like cry out to their family when they were using i was kind of the opposite i was the the hermit who didn't want to hurt anybody yeah i knew what i was doing was bad like i knew she knew something was up but she was caught up in her own shit that she was like not worried about it because i always somewhat took care of myself so she was like she just didn't know what was what was going on would you even say like i mean it's it's interesting because even when we're in our addiction you know i feel like god can still utilize us Mm -hmm. like do you feel like that her even giving you a phone call was kind of like a oh no the 100 i I dropped and prayed to my knees and then the next day i get a call from my mom saying hey i'm putting you on my insurance because like i'm sorry it's it's whether it's state or private like it's and especially back then when access wasn't shit yeah like I didn't have any really big options. I'm getting told to go to treatment, but I'm like, can you guys tell me where to go? Like, I don't, I don't know <laughs> yeah. where to go. I'm just free balling it, looking on Google, mm-hmm. calling a bunch of places, trying to figure out what to do. And I mean, people are still doing that to this day, not knowing that there's more resources out there. That's, it's nuts, man. I mean, it's gotten so much worse too, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, we'll go into that a little bit later, but no, I think that's fantastic. So you went to your first treatment center and that was in Scottsdale. Um, it was my first inpatient. Like I did a couple of outpatients, um, got high throughout the whole outpatient, yeah. sold dope to a couple people in outpatient. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> like, don't do that, don't guys. Don't do that. That was just, that was just a different time. But uh, yeah, I was. That was my first time actually going into inpatient and staying. And like, like when I when people say like if you want to get to rehab, you'll get to rehab. Like it's true. Like I wanted to go. I had that moment. I was like, bags are packed. Let's go. And like. It was in Scottsdale. I'm in Chino Valley. I have no really big resources. So my, and I love this woman and she was my case, my DCS case aide. And it's crazy because I I was like one of her first cases, but like, I still talk to her to this day, mind you. That's cool. And I called her and I'm like, I need to get to this hotel into or this hotel to get on a shuttle to go to, to Sky Harbor to get to treatment. And She's like, okay, how are you paying for the shuttle? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I, I kind of got honest with her. I'm like, I'm going to sell my last bag of dope and then pay for the shuttle. And she's like, no, I'll pay for your shuttle. Wow. To go to treatment. And um, she she drove me to the hotel. I jumped on a shuttle. Um, I was at Sky Harbor Airport and I still have a bag in my pocket, mind you. You know, I'm walking into treatment. And I remember even when I was there, I've still had that second thought. Like I'm sitting there. My mom's going to call me an Uber from the, uh, from the airport to the treatment center. 
And I'm like, I can go on a sick one right now. Like I'm back to my old stomping grounds where I know people, I can go party, you know, like, yeah. like I said, that old club scene, I'm like, I can go back to that right now or I can go to rehab. And I, so like that delusion was still there. Like, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I can, I can go get high and do some more shit. Or I can go to treatment. I fucked up and put me back in the hood yeah, right now. <laughs> you put, put me back on my stomping ground. Yeah, for like, real. Let's go. Oh and, man. And uh, no, then I my mom called me. Another gotcha. My mom called me. She's like, "Hey, are you there?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm here." <laughs> <laughs> and she called me the Uber. And as I'm walk, I remember I'm walking into the front doors of this treatment center. Also, don't recommend this. I'm pouring the last of the mind you. Stuff doesn't taste good. I'm pouring the last of the bag in my mouth. Oh, shit. Just walking into this treatment center. And I remember I threw it away in the front desk and I just see her come back with like gloves. <laughs> like the bullet out of the trash in the front desk. And I'm like, ooh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I think you're so good at hiding and yeah. stuff too, huh? Like, like all, it, is it inconspicuous walking in there? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, eh, it's fine. <laughs> it's funny. Man, all right. So, like, at what point, though, like, I mean, you, it seems like you started to listen to that voice for the first time, right? God was showing you directions, which you needed to go. Where was that moment when you finally started, like, when you saw that change in your life? Like, when did you become sober? You know, it, it wasn't the first week, a couple weeks in treatment. Like, even my plan when I even got the treatment was like, all right, I'm going to do this, make DCS happy, and then I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. And I think it was about... I was about a month into treatment, maybe a month. In, um, and I remember Man, it takes time. There were, yeah, it does. There was, there was this, uh, there was this woman there. There's two women at the treatment center that I went to, uh, Bree and Randy, if you guys are listening to this, I love both of you. They both talked to me about their experience as being mothers that used and mothers that were away from their children to be able to get sober and them coming to take the time to speak with me about their experience. I remember she came into my room, like she worked at the clinic and she came to the house that I was at, came into my room and sat down and talked to me and her doing that for me. I remember it was that conversation. It was the first time I cried, mind you, like I'm a tough girl. Like you can't, it's hard to get me to cry. I only used to cry when I was mad. Now I, now I'm a pussy. I cry all the time. <laughs> but like during that time, I was like, I was like, no, I don't cry. Like I was raised by, you know, a tough biker dad and a, and a really like raging mom. So like, I had that first breakdown moment where I just cried my eyes out. And it was that moment where it was like, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And I remember, um, cause it wasn't a 12 step step based program, but uh, the couple of the BHGs there, they were like, why don't you, you know, start sliding the blue book over to me. And I'm like, I'm like, ah. yeah. and, um, I started to read it. And then I, one of the crazy things is when my dad, our house got raided, my dad had a, an AA book and a 12 and 12 at our old house. And I had no idea, but I remembered seeing it at our house, but it was just on our bookshelf that we never touched because yeah. I'm not reading books when I'm taking it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I had uh, my ex, he, cause I would go do visitations with my kids um, while I was in treatment. I had him bring me those books and I got a sponsor while I was in there. And I remember thinking this is a load of shit and really believing it for the first couple even first time reading it i'm like what the heck and then i'm like i got to i think it was um more about alcoholism or we no it was we agnostics because like i didn't believe in the god thing even though i had that spiritual moment that i remember couldn't identify at that time yeah i read we agnostics and i was like i had a right there's a part where it talks about having faith in the substance 
because I didn't have faith in anything else. And I was like, oh God, how true that is. And then that's when it really just started to like, all right, I'm going to read this over again. So I started after I read We Agnostics, I started from the beginning again because I had a different perception on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, my highlighter is just going crazy, right? I'm just highlighting all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, I, how did I not see this before? But it's just like that, that, that mind change that, that picking away at those, those negative things or that ego or that everything else that was in my head that was stopping me from really embracing the experience. Like that's when it started to happen. Wow. That's awesome. You know, we used to do, and and I'm curious to know what you think of this. I'm just, I, I it takes me back. I would do groups, you know, with the women and stuff. And and to me, it was always very special because I was raised by my mom. My mom is super, super strong, you know, and, and I think about that, the stress, even with my wife, I know a lot of the, you know, my kids schoolings, a lot of these things kind of not necessarily just fall on her, but she is our rock. I'll just be 100 percent. She's the rock of the family, you know, and, and I try my best as a husband to not be you know, one of those old school dudes from the 50s types of bullshit. You know, I try and help with everything and with the schooling and everything. But I can only imagine the way that a, a mother must feel, you know, once that substance is out of her body and she doesn't really know where she's going yet as far as recovery. Like she's going to be 100 percent sober, you know, still dealing with being in that delusion, as you say, you know, and one of the things that I would always tell them is like, you know, Kids are definitely resilient. They're a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. I think that shame and that guilt, we hold on to it and make it feel like, you know, you know, I'm I'm a piece of shit. I'm a horrible parent. You know, my kid's not going to love me or whatever. But I always tell them, you know, take this time in recovery for once to be selfish for yourself. You need it because, I mean, when when we're in our active addiction, we're we're selfish, but for a completely different reason. Right. 100%. So it's like when, when you come into recovery and you are actually taking that time for yourself, it seems like it's selfish, like it wasn't when you were using, but the outcome is completely different because this benefits everybody in your family. This benefits your husband, your kids. You know what I mean? So it's like, what advice could you give, you know, a mother that 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 may be feeling like that, that doesn't feel like it's right to have to take that time away from her kids or from her family? If I had to talk to a, a mom specifically, I'd say like, I know it feels selfish, but like this is for the better of the full full picture. Mm. It, it's for the full picture, and it's like it's, if you're okay, your kids are gonna be okay. If you're not okay, your kids aren't gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. That's yep. that's just the truth. Like they they also feed off of our energy, and if there's not that good an energy coming off of you, they're gonna feel that. Mm. And even if it's not being said, even if actions aren't happening around them, I mean these they were inside of you at one point in time. They feel your energy radiates on them and they will feel it. That's so take so th- take that time to really look at yourself because it's going to be better for them in the long run. Even though it's like a month, 3 months, however long you're taking the time to like at least be in treatment, that's nothing compared to the time that you're going to have a beautiful experience with them once you're out of it. That's awesome. I th- I, th- I think it's true. I mean it's 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 beautiful to hear your story, yo, for real. Like, it's a pleasure to meet you, like, thinking about that. You know, I mean, I, I just, I think back on on the groups, you know, we'd have mothers and fathers here during the holidays, mm-hmm. during, you know, Thanksgiving, these times that we're supposed to be around family. And, and, and honestly, for anybody listening, man, I mean, you just have to remember that you're not worth anything to your family when you're in the middle of your addiction. Like, you can't really offer anything to them. Take that time to to get that out of your body. You, like you said, even if it's six months, even if it's a year, yeah. 
those moments of you being in their life, being able to remember those memories, being able to actually create those um, core memories and those experiences with your kid, it may take a little bit of time, but in comparison, it's like, it's, it's totally worth it. Yeah, it truly is. Uh, you know, my situation with DCS didn't end, end great, but like the pivotal moments that I still have with my kids whenever I get to see them yeah. is just extraordinary. Yeah. You know? And, and, uh, and I'm sure just by, you know, even having this conversation with you, you're a fighter, right? Yeah. But not just in like in the octagon, you know what I'm yeah. saying? You're whooping ass in life right now. So yeah. it's like I know just by your energy that I'm sure you're never going to stop fighting for your babies. No, I'm never going to stop, you know. And, you know, at four months sober, I found out that my rights were severed. Even though I went to treatment, um, it wasn't what they wanted. It was, yeah. it was you're not supposed to tell a sober person, hey, you got sober too late. But that's essentially what they what they told me in the courtroom. And you know, even when they told me that I was like, I had already dove in so far into this program. I had already started to fill the hole inside of me that was missing from the recovery from God, from all these different things that when I had that perfect relapse ticket of, Hey, your right's severed. So you don't really don't have to do this anymore. I had already started to find myself. I had already started to build a new life for myself. I had already started to uh, love myself that when I found that out, it was like, okay, this isn't the time to stop. This is the time to push harder. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's what's up, man. And, and how long have you been sober now? It's been four years. This is for you right here. Four years. I think that's awesome. I know I know you're working in the field right now. What type of things are you doing now to, to help uplift the community? Oh, I have too many things. Um, yeah, hey, so, that's what's up. Yeah, so, I mean, nowadays... Um, I work as an admissions coordinator. I worked my way from the, I started working in treatment when I was six months and worked my way um, up to admissions. And I absolutely love that. I'm a co-director of a female sober, uh, of a sober living. Awesome. Um, I also am part of the board for the sober softball community. So I travel and play sober softball, that athlete in me, that's right? That's cool. Yeah, that's so I travel at least five to six times a year to go play sober softball with people that are in AA, NA, all the A's. Yeah. Um, all around the country and um i also am a part of a board that's opening up a new meeting hall in uh chandler uh, gilbert area that's fantastic that's awesome lindy i I really want to thank you for driving all the way down here and coming and sharing your testimony this has been a huge blessing for me as well to be able to hear that you know being able to see that light inside of you you know it's it's a beautiful thing thank you very much for coming oh thank you for having me this was great i absolutely enjoyed this that's awesome ladies and gentlemen give it up to our good friend Lindy one more time. Shout out to Garrett. Thank you so much, bro. I got to get you in here too, man. Yeah, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, you know, please make sure that you share this with somebody. You know, I think you said this earlier about the transparency, about, you know, it's being open, being honest. That's how we help each other. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And, And I hope and pray that whoever's listening to this on the other end, that this episode was able to help you. You know, you guys continue to take care of yourselves. Much love. You know, God bless you all. And we will definitely see you on the next one. Peace.
What's going on, everybody? This is Buddha from the RCast, and I just wanted to thank you for checking out this week's episode. It means a lot, and if you could share it with a friend or a loved one, somebody you need in recovery, or maybe somebody who just needs that little bit of extra positivity in their life, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you would like to join us here on the RCast, either in the studio live or online, hit us up. The links are down in the show notes of this episode, and on there, you can find direct links to our main website here at America's Rehab Campus and all of our social media platforms. Follow us. We keep the posts positive and motivational, focused on recovery, health, and wellness. As you know, in this modern day and age, we need as much love as possible, y'all. And as always, if you or somebody you know is in need of substance abuse treatment, please don't hesitate to give us a call. We're open 24 hours a day, and our direct phone number is 1-833-272-7342. Once again, that phone number is 1-833-272-7342. I hope you all have a beautiful rest of your day. Much love, and God bless. Peace.